The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Why, yes, actually. We have danced with the devil in the pale moonlight. It was a foxtrot, and this is totally super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we remove, we remove, we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey guys, thanks for being patient with us. I know that we've recorded like two podcasts in the last uh, like month and a half, um, if not Mm -hmm. more. Uh, So we've, uh, between me finishing the movie and Arthur having a new show, it's been a little hard to get to it, but we are back guys and we are going to do... the Batman movies, uh, not just yeah. the one we're doing the today, but we're do movies. the all four of the of the Burton era, although he only really did two of them, uh, Batman movies starting in 1989 with 1989's Batman, which we're reviewing today, followed by 1992's Batman Returns, 1994's Batman Forever, and, uh, and 1997's Batman and Robin. Um, this film came out in 1989. I'm sorry, Batman Forever was 1995. Sorry, came out in 1989 in the height of Batmania. Now, how old were you in 1989? Oh goodness, I would have been 10 years old. All right, do you remember Batmania? I don't remember Batmania. Keep in mind, I was out of the country at the time. I do remember this movie. Like, this movie defined about a year of my life and my friends' lives. Like, that was what we were playing on. The the Batman game was what we were playing on Nintendo and Game Boy. Um, I must have seen this film at least a dozen times as a kid. Um, This came right at a time uh, for me. For me, I was in seventh grade. Um, And it came at a time... When I was already reading comics, but most other people weren't. And to read comics put you a little bit in the, you know, you were a little bit off to the side. But then something happened. There was this renaissance of Batman, starting with uh, the release of The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and also Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. These two uh, key seminal uh, Batman comics that came out at the time. And it started to be that there was just this resurgence of the iconography of Batman. Everybody had the Batman t-shirts. Everybody knew the comics. Everybody was familiar. People who would never wear a Batman t-shirt that you would ever think would be part of that was wearing a Batman t-shirt. And that was all happening prior to this movie coming out. Now, I don't know if that's the hype machine that Warner Brothers had going or if it's that they realized that the zeitgeist was growing and that's why they started pushing and pushing to make this movie such a big deal. Uh, The movie was, uh, Tim Burton was hired as the director in 1986, which is three full years before. And I don't remember in 1986 there being such a push toward Batman. So it might have been a a mania that was fabricated. But by the time this movie opened, it was an event. It was like the event. And keep in mind, this is not that far after the superhero film was kind of murdered by Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Oh, um, yeah. This is like the su- superheroes were out. It wasn't a thing anymore. So when this came out, for this to arrive at, at such a time that it was lines around the corner, it was Star Wars level of intensity for this film when it came out, especially among kids, but adults too, frankly, was a it was a spectacular thing. And the film had a lot going against it. Um, did you watch the 1960, the 1966 uh, Batman TV show? Uh, I did, yes. 
Um, I mean, what obviously was your th- not when it aired, but I watched it. Yeah. What was your thought on it? Did you watch it when they would have like the two episodes back to back? They When the show came out, it was every week. But when I aired, watched it, it was the Batman hour that would have the episodes were always mm-hmm. in pairs. Did you, That's did you what watch I did it too, like the that? Batman hour? I mean, I we're talking I watched it when I was five or six. And the fact that my parents had no problem with me watching it when I was five or six probably tells you something about the show. But I, I love I think it. I think Batman has been relatively ubiquitous throughout my childhood. Certainly, um, I was always a Marvel guy. As little as five, when I was five years old, my favorite cartoon in the world was Spider-Man and his amazing friends, uh, mm-hmm. which remains probably one of my favorite incarnations. Like it's it's aged, but it certainly is does something that that is very very close to the comics. Uh, but I would take any superhero I could get. I would watch the 1960s Spider-Man. I would watch anything that if they had a cape or or tights, I wanted to watch that thing. And certainly, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how much that extended to like the Incredible Hulk TV show, which I watched from time to time, but really was like a like a like a procedural drama in which the Hulk showed up at the very end. Um, Batman, Adam West, Batman, the zip, bam, poo, paf was something that I was very familiar with in that it was the only live action really option for me, except for Wonder Woman, which was only on every week or so. So I had that in my head. And I think everyone kind of had that as that's what Batman was. But in the comics at the time, that's not really what Batman had become. Batman had become this darker character again. Yeah, he certainly did. In, in the comics, he did change to reflect the TV show when the TV show came out. And then there was a there was a push to move him back to what he used to be. And he'd been like this since sort of the mid-70s. Yeah, it's worth but noting still- the late 80s were such a uh, – like comics in general started really going uh, – you know, dystopian and bleak. I mean, this is around the time of Watchmen coming out as well. Um, so the X Men new... were having the fall of the mutants at the time, where all of the mutants, like they all died. <laughs> yeah. So this darker Batman sort of it did fit. Uh, was a good word. It really fit the zeitgeist of the time. Yeah, and I it's despite despite having this going against it, it, it the film is sort of a counter programming to everything that you would expect that they would cast the a Batman film um, because you had like characters like Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford and and you know and characters like that Arnold Schwarzenegger and stuff that the the fact that they would go hey let's cast a guy who's known for Beetlejuice and Mr. Mom as Batman yeah. and again you had villains out there so casting Jack Nicholson you know yes we could think of him as the perfect Joker and yes he is evil but the man was fifty two at the time. And the Joker was not supposed to be a 52-year-old man. But again, mm-hmm. I credit Burton with this. The idea that, hey, let's go and make something that's not what everybody expects. Because there's a version of this movie that would be what everyone expected, right? A square-jawed hero. You know, they get, I guess, who's hot in 89? Get Ray Liotta to come in in mm-hmm. 1989 and to square off against, you know, Robin Williams is is an obvious other choice for the Joker where it's sort of young versus young. And instead, the, the movie comes with this sort of offbeat, off-kilter experience that we're going to talk about. Before we get there, I want to talk really quick about the summer of 1989. Um, I'm listening to another podcast right now where they're reviewing the summer of 1889. And I just want to list to you 
the movies that came out in the summer of 1989, if I can be so bold. Go for it. May 24th, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. June 2nd, Dead Poets Society. June 9th, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. June 13th, James Bond, License to Kill. June 16th, Ghostbusters 2. June 23rd, Batman. And on the same day, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. June 30th, Do the Right Thing. And on the same day, The Karate Kid 3. July 5th, Weekend at Bernie's. July 7th, Lethal Weapon 2. July 14th, was a re-release of Disney's Peter Pan, opening across from When Harry Met Sally. July 21st is UHF. July 28th is Friday the 13th, Part 8, and Turner and Hooch. August 2nd is Parenthood. August 9th is The Abyss. August 11th is Nightmare on Elm Street 5. August 16th is Uncle Buck. August 18th is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Wow. 1989 is possibly one of the best summers of film I've ever heard of. It's crazy. It's It's crazy. (laughs) That's just like every week. Like pretty much with the exception of UHF, all of those films succeeded wildly. And UHF is a movie that is such a cult classic. People watch it today. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, that's true. UHF really did succeed in the long term. I mean, it's... It's crazy. You either have sequels to major franchises like Nightmare Five, uh, Jason Eight, and and start and Star Trek Five. You've got you know Lethal Weapon at the height of its powers. You've got films like uh, it's crazy. It's crazy that this was all mm-hmm. one summer. It's it's unbelievable that this was one summer. Um, and and in the middle of the summer, this is the movie that was the height. This was the the movie mm-hmm. that was the story in the middle of the summer. Um, and the fact that it came out, you know, I am exactly 30 years older than my youngest son. So part of what I did in doing this is I, sh- or, or my oldest son, I showed this movie to both my kids, which is interesting because when I was, my, my younger son is is eight years old. And when I was eight, I can't imagine that I would have been okay watching this film. But mm-hmm. my youngest son, this film is 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 lightweight compared to what eight year olds are seeing now. Um, mm-hmm. This film, in terms of the level of violence, doesn't even match up to an Ant Man. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, that it's way darker, but it's not nearly as sort of, you know, violence is crunchier now. I guess is a good mm-hmm. way to put it. Um, Although I do but, remember the 80s were – this movie was also kind of vi- – in terms of violence, it was tamer than other violent films in the 80s. I mean the 80s were an extraordinarily gory time. Um, you know, I remember just about every every action film had uh, – you know, like all the Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff, your, pred- your Predator, your Terminator, stuff like that. You had just a ton of – blood and gore, casual disregard for human life, um, and a lot of gratuitous nudity. Um, and when I'm watching Batman now, it really does feel like a, there's a lot of it that feels like a PG version of what I remember the eighties action film to be. Yeah. And that is certainly very true. We had started by, um, by 89 to have this pushback from the MPAA where, Mm -hmm. um, where even rated R action films were getting a little bit neutered. There were people, there were films that pushed against that. Um, but I specifically remember, um, Nightmare on Elm Street 5. I'm a huge Nightmare on Elm Street fan. I remember Nightmare on Elm Street 5 having um, it today. It would almost be PG-13 because of the stuff that they were cutting out of specifically horror films. You are right that it didn't extend to action films. Action films could be as bloody as you want. I mean, for goodness sake, I think Total Recall came out in 1990 and that film yeah, Total is, Recall is, Robocop. I mean, geez, oh, I go back and, and Robocop 2, by the way, R- Robocop 2 is is one of the most violent films I've ever seen. Robocop, the first one is gory and, and the violence is intent. But Robocop 2, there's just like somebody dies 
literally every 30 seconds mm-hmm. of that film. Which it's, it's which a, still reflects that dystopia again, that uh, like what I was talking about with that just it human life seems much more like an expendable commodity uh, in a lot of the films of the 80s. Well, we are 90s. coming to the end of the me decade and we're coming to the, you know, right. Reagan was out. We had a president in George Bush senior that there was a lot less confidence in. Um, we had, uh, we're still in the height of, of the money, money, money time. I think that is really being shown here. The, the yuppie culture is certainly reflected mm-hmm. in this film, but I think that there is also starting to be, you know, the, the children of the hippies are now the ones in middle school and high school. Um, and yeah. And they have watched maybe the grander ideals of their parents fall away. And you have a, a an interesting time, one of the first times ever in history, where you have the children of the counterculture as the counterculture, as the participants in the counterculture have become the institution. The mm-hmm. children are now finding ways to revolt against the, the institution. I think you're starting to see the beginning of geek culture, certainly D&D. Um, had started up and the 60s kids had no idea how to deal with that. Like they, mm-hmm. they was satanic. It was going to get you. Um, horror movies were going to get you. Um, um, all those things that were sort of subversive were, were comic books were considered dangerous. Video games were going to mm-hmm. rot your brain. And I think that um, all these things are being introduced to uh, a generation, an older generation of kids and the, the 60s kids. Um, who are not used to seeing this be the focus. And in the middle of it is this movie. So um, let me just give you the stats and we go on to the uh, we'll go on to the synopsis. This movie mm-hmm. was budgeted at thirty five million dollars. Rumors say that it ballooned up from thirty to forty eight million dollars. Part of that deal included a 40% pay cut for Jack Nicholson, who normally would get $10 million a movie, but took a $6 million pay cut for this movie. And in exchange, he got a percentage. Um, he said, don't pay me oh. now, but what I want is a percentage of all of the merchandising and a percentage of every movie that sequelizes Batman. Smart um, man. So Jack Nicholson ended up making $100 million for Batman, <laughs> 50 million of which came from Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin, which he did not have anything to do with. Wow. Um, yeah, an amazing deal. Um, in the, uh, It ended up making $411 million in the box office uh, and was the, the end of its run. Number one movie of the year and the end of its run was the fifth highest grossing movie of all time. But, sir, what is the plot? The plot of Batman. All right, here we go. Prologue. We open on a cityscape built out of a gothic-slash-art deco nuts fevered dreams. An innocent family takes a wrong turn and gets mugged. But as the muggers count their ill-gotten gains on one of Gotham's rooftops, they soon find themselves facing a man in a fearsome bat costume, who beats the crap out of them and gives them the message that he is now ensuring the safety of Gotham streets. Act 1. Exposition is laid out. We learn that the mayor and the district attorney, a stylish Harvey Dent played by Billy D. Williams, and Commissioner Gordon are all being stymied in their goal for a safer Gotham by a mob boss named Carl Grissom, played by a delightfully scenery-chewing Jack Palance. Grissom has a head enforcer, his number one guy, really, in the unapologetically homicidal Jack Napier, who, as it turns out, is sleeping with Grissom's girl. We also meet the plucky-slash-douchey reporter Alexander Knox, who is the only man at the city newspaper who thinks there is something to this Batman story. 
He gets a new ally in his quest to unearth the bat, though, in the just-arrived photographer Vicky Vale. Act 2. Knox and Vale try to talk with Commissioner Gordon about the Batman, and decide to ambush him at a charity gala being held by millionaire Bruce Wayne. Sparks fly between Bruce and Vicky when they meet, but Bruce is called away by his butler very suddenly. It turns out that Jack Napier and his goons are trashing the Axis Chemical Factory, which is of interest to Bruce because he is also, wait for it, Batman. The factory job, however, is also a setup, as Grissom has informed the cops in the uh, Grissom has informed the cops in the hopes that Napier will get killed as revenge for taking his girl. There is a shootout between criminals and cops, further complicated by Batman's arrival. Napier scuffles with Batman atop a catwalk and ends up falling into a vat of toxic goo. Act three: Bruce and Vicky go on a date, which goes really well. There's definite chemistry, and then Bruce gets suddenly really distant, clearly not wanting someone else to be dragged into his life. Meanwhile, it turns out that Napier survived, because of course he did, but the chemicals have given his face a hideous, clownish look, and further sent him off the mental deep end. He kills Grissom, dubs himself the Joker, and declares himself the new crime lord of Gotham. Besides embarking on a fiendish plot to terrorize Gotham with poisoned beauty, product, uh, with poisoned beauty products, he also takes an interest in Vicky Vale, and decides to pursue her. Act 4. The Joker entraps Vicky into a terrifying yet memorable meetup at the local museum, but she is rescued by Batman in his truly legendary Batmobile. Bruce struggles with his feelings for Vicky. He even decides to let her in on his secret, but is interrupted at her apartment by the Joker's arrival. While Bruce survives the encounter, he is shaken by the Joker's question, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Which is what the gunman who murdered his parents asked as well. Could they be the same man? As it turns out, Alfred the butler resolves some of the couple's issues by just showing Vicky down to the Batcave, which honestly, neither Bruce nor Vicky seem that surprised by. The Joker embarks on his most fiendish plot, where he hijacks the Gotham TV airwaves and informs the city that he will be giving out $25 million in cash that night in a parade celebrating the city's 200th anniversary. Act 5 the final showdown. Joker's parade is, of course, a ruse just to get the people out into the streets where he can kill them all with poison gas deployed from his creepy parade balloons. But Batman swoops in, literally, in his Batplane, gathering up the balloons and carrying them up into the sky and letting them go so they won't hurt anyone until they come down again somewhere else. Maybe, I don't know, Metropolis across the bay? <laughs> The Joker shoots down the Batplane with a freakishly long gun that is in no way a metaphor despite where he pulls it from. He then abducts Vicky and takes her to the top of Gotham Cathedral. Batman pursues, and we have a delightfully gothic final fight atop the cathedral, complete with ringing bells. The Joker falls from the cathedral's heights to his death, and the day is saved. We close on the city unveiling their new bat signal to be lit whenever Gotham is in need. Vicky is picked up by Alfred in a really nice Rolls Royce and told that Master Bruce might be a bit late that evening. She's cool with it, though because, hey, there's champagne. The final shot of the film is of the bat signal over Gotham, with our cloaked figure standing atop its rooftops, looking up. Fiend. What a great synopsis, and what an interesting film. Um, I'm going to put this right out there. This is my first impression of this film when I was watching it uh, this time around, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how I watched it prior to now. But I don't know. We call it, you know, we're going to be watching, doing all four of these films. So we call them the Burton verse, right? And really it's the Burton verse mm -hmm. because uh, Michael Go, uh, Michael Go and Pat Hingle continue in their roles as Alfred and Commissioner Gordon. And everybody else, includes, including Batman, changes roles throughout the, the mm -hmm. films. Um, but they're supposed to be all one, two, three, four, part of the same universe. That being yeah. said, the look of the universe changes every single movie. Um, mm -hmm. And people feel like the break is between Batman Returns and Batman Forever, the departure 
of Keaton, but I've also seen Batman Returns. I'm going to spoil ahead of time here. Batman Returns is my favorite Batman movie. Um, I haven't looked mm-hmm. at it with a critical eye, and we will. Uh, but I, it is my favorite superhero movie. There was a time I said it was my favorite movie, despite how much other people don't like it. So I will say this. I don't feel in watching this movie now that this movie is in the even in the same world as Batman Returns. This I film think I was watching it and realized this is actually it is actually one of the less weird films that Tim Burton has ever made. Um I feel like Batman Returns, which is much darker, is a more that's a more you like that level of darkness is what we usually expect from Burton. And while this film is decidedly darker than, you know, the previous TV Batman, um, at the same time, it's it like it it starts going into gothic, um, you know, the gothic style being, you know, having ideas of like cathedrals and, you know, dark windswept moors and gothic is frequently associated with darkness uh you know dracula that's a gothic tale um we're starting to see certainly gothic in the architecture here like i absolutely loved all the cityscapes the design of gotham in this that gothic art deco is fantastic um but there's a lot of light in this film too there's a lot of sunlight uh not so much from what i remember from batman returns like batman returns goes just truly dark gothic in places this well, one I, is batman sort of returns on its is way almost, but not the- it's, it's almost not even gothic it's it's like a black and white cartoon it's frankly it looks like it's it's clearly cut from the same cloth as the nightmare before christmas it is um mm, yeah. it, it's in, yeah. it's in color but it's at christmas so but the, you barely notice that it's in color yeah it's it's really very burtonesque as if there's mm-hmm. if that's the best way i can describe it it's very burtonesque um it's almost whereas, like burton was playing it relatively safe with this one to make sure that he got hit and then with the well, second one felt he had a little more leeway but even the universe like i don't see a world for carl grissom in the rest of the batman movies and i don't see a world for alexander knox in the rest of the Batman movies. Um, I agree. Everything here is played relatively straight, including Batman. It it's, it's played so straight that you kind of get your, and it's not played the straight again until Batman begins. You just kind of go with the fact that there's a, a bat, you know, there's an interesting, and I forget who said it. And I'm, I'm sorry that I, that I'm not remembering who said it because it's an important person who said it, but that you can't, you can only have one gimme in a film is the idea or in a story. So for instance, you have Harry Potter, right? The, the, the gimme in Harry mm-hmm. Potter is that there is magic in the world and everything that is fantastical about Harry Potter, it springs out of the idea that there is magic in the world. But if suddenly mm-hmm. in Harry Potter, there was, you know, Harry Potter eight, Harry versus aliens, like there were suddenly aliens in it too. Then mm-hmm. we would go. That's BS. There can't be aliens because that's too many mm-hmm. gimmies. Um, yeah. Batman being the only real gimme in the film. The rest of the film plays like kind of straight as almost like a 1940s crime versus press thing. I was just I was literally just thinking this is a 1930s film that's set in the 1980s. I mean, it's, you know, the mobsters are the big menace, um, you know, with the, you know, until the Joker really starts going, uh, going to the height of what he does. But yeah, it it feels very 30s and 40s. I'm, I'm sure deliberately so. Um, the other thing that film has going for it is actors at the top of their game. Now, I'm going to come out and say that until this viewing, I kind of was like, Jack Nicholson is great. Michael Keaton is great. And Kim Basinger, well, you know, she does her best. Um, This time around, 
Having learned to respect Kim Basinger as a as an actress, um, if you want to see her do great work, watch the Eminem film Eight Mile. She's spectacular in that. film. Oh, so good, yeah. Um, or or watch also LA cool Con- World and LA Confidential. She's great in that film. I think she got an Academy Award for mm-hmm. that film. Um, yeah. I n- notice what she's doing now, and she's doing what she can with a character like Vicky Vale to all at once make her. You know, make her an empowered character while at the same time she's not his girl Friday. She's not Lois Lane. She yeah. is okay. absolutely a stereotypical beautiful woman of the 80s, but she knows that she's that and she's using that to, you know, she's just accepting of of the stereotype that people are going to have of her and she accepts it, dismisses it, and then moves on with her agenda. And that's very clear mm-hmm. with Knox because Knox, you know, is hitting on her in a way that today we'd go, me too, not appropriate, Knox. But Knox would just be like, like, hey, can I take you out? She's like, no. Okay, can we go to lunch? Okay, maybe. Let's get to work. And I realize yeah. what she's doing so, is she's just like sidestepping. She's she's sidestepping the culture of the time to get what her agenda is done. And I think it's an interesting character that's interestingly portrayed. So two things with Vicky. First, uh, to all those listening out there, obviously I was being sarcastic when I said cool world. I just want to make sure everyone knows that. Uh, and second, the yeah, that was one of the first things I noticed with Vicky Vale was there's no way this character would fly uh, in today's society or even 10 years ago. Like Vicky Vale is hands down to me the most dated thing about this film um, in the fa- in the sense that you know, they, they they sort of they do a hand wave of, oh, she's an intrepid reporter who's gone off to, you know, take pictures in dangerous areas and then just pretty much reduce her to a damsel in distress uh, the entire time. The yes, there's a little bit of the, you know, why won't you let me in, Bruce, uh, romantic plot to it. But that is also fairly cookie cutter and not really uh, satisfactorily explored. Um, although it does have the wonderful, it does give us the wonderful scene in Vicky's apartment where Bruce tries to explain things to her and fails horribly. Um, but yeah, but you're right. Given that, uh, Kim Basinger does a great job with what she's given. Now, let me ask stu- you, sir. The, uh, the yeah, please. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to say the moment that stuck out to me is after Batman takes the film from her. Um, she leans back. She's she's dazed. She's surprised. She's sort of overwhelmed. She feels that she no longer has the film. She takes a second and then she immediately gets on the phone with Knox and she's like, can we make the paper? Mm-hmm. She doesn't sit around going, oh, what happened? Like she's she is. She takes a second to deal with what happened. And she's like, I got I got stuff to do. Like, we got to get the news yeah. out to try and save everyone. And and you know, for the time, yes, she is the most dated thing. But I'm noticing that she is, you know, there's almost a, a working girl nine to five aspect to her where like, that's what, you know, that's what she is. She's a working girl. And, you know, now yeah, you the know idea that there, there, the, the idea that like, there would be a movie called Working Girl is just bizarre in this day and age. Um, mm-hmm. But, the, but uh, at the time, yeah, please. You're right. Vicky Vale, she is a she's a she is a working girl. She is a Vicky Vale is a much stronger character. It's almost like you've got this actual strong character with agency that has been forced to instead play a much more objectified role in a simplified plot. Like, yeah, you're you're totally right. We could see an entirely different film just of Vicky Vale doing her reporter thing with, you know, with Basinger's Vale, and it would totally work. 
But she's not. But even the character is not given the chance to really show that in this film. Well, and I think that that is probably, you know, the other side, the the curse of I mean, I'm sure it's still the true today, but especially then the curse of beautiful women in the 80s in the workplace was that the first thing that is said to them is hello legs. You know, I think that's that is and you had to play into that. At the time, you had to be enticing. And even now, there's there's truth that that people who are more physically attractive get paid higher. Um, mm-hmm. It's going away. I think that Batman Returns will specifically um, play the other side of that. And and the injustice of the of the woman who is pushed down um, by corporate America is part of what Batman Returns is. Um, mm-hmm. And and is done to much greater effect than Vicky Vale. But I I want to sort of I guess the reason why are we even focusing on Kim Basinger with the other amazing performances here because I have given her shit for thirty years as being the weak link of the three, and I no longer feel like Kim Basinger's performance is a weak link. I actually think she she does pretty well. But she's not oh, why we're cool. here, right? I mean, no, whose yeah, name let's, is, let's talk about who, Nicholson who, and Keaton. Yeah. Whose name is first listed? Nicholson. Not unprecedented. If you remember when we talked about the original Superman, the motion picture, Marlon Brando listed before Christopher Reeve um, mm-hmm. in the original Superman. And once again, Nicholson listed above Keaton because while Keaton was certainly a draw for the younger audience post Beetlejuice, Nich- Nicholson was, you know. He was the deal. He was he Nicholson was, the was what lent star. the fi- Nicholson was what gave the film legitimacy. Yeah. Um best joker, not best joker. I think it's you know we're going to have to revisit it when we do the other ones, but uh but you know people say Nicholson versus Ledger, some people try and say Hamill. Um some people have written off Nicholson. What is your thought of of Nicholson's Joker and and your impression of the Joker as a character? Well, my first thought is that you know when people say best joker, it's ah, that's you, you know my thoughts on, you know, trying to compare artistic things. Um, what's important to me with every Joker is that I mean the Joker is such a there is so much depth to mine in the character that I love it when actors have their own specific takes on it. Um, you know I always think the uh, the uh, let me sidetrack a bit with the Dungeons and Dragons alignment system. Uh, they basically your your alignment is set up as whether you are good, neutral, or evil, and whether you are lawful, neutral, or chaotic. So like Robin Hood would be the perfect example of chaotic good. He wants to do good for the world, but he doesn't trust the law in doing it. Um, You know, a tyrant is lawful evil in the sense that, you know, they're only out for themselves, but they use order and the system in order to work for them. Uh, Very, very frequently when I see memes doing the alignment chart based on, you know, the superhero universe, the Joker is the one who shows up as chaotic evil, who just as is said in uh, Batman Begins, you know, some people just or sorry, the Dark Knight, some people just want to watch the world burn. Um, and Nicholson's Joker certainly, uh, certainly has that. Um, I like the fact that they really explore Napier as a character first and you realize, oh, this guy was just homicidal to begin with his, his motivations to just kill and create pain did not change from when, when he turned into the Joker from Jack Napier. It was just that his methodology did, um, so it is, uh, you know, this character was, I was, I remember the menace of Nicholson's Joker 
I had forgotten how wacky he let himself get with it. Because, uh, of course, that's the other side of the Joker is there's got to be that he needs to be a clown um, in the in the old sense of it. Uh, not necessarily funny, but just weird and off the wall. And I really liked what he did with it. Um, it's actually and he was a clown in the traditional sense. I oh God, I'd forgotten that wonderfully over-the-top murderous joy buzzer uh, and all the toys that he used. I'd say the big gimme in this film is both the fact that Batman and Joker just get whatever gadgets they want and are able to produce them with a very short amount of time frame and very limited resources, but we're just like, that's okay. It's another superhero or supervillain tool. It's what they can do. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's... I agree with you that that saying best... Um, when it comes to art, it's not that helpful. It's really easy for me to say worse, Jared Leto. Um, so I can do that without even <laughs> stumbling. Um, I like know, so favorite. Favorite's a great word. There's, there's a. I, let's do it this way. Jared Leto showed us that there's a way to do this character wrong. You know, there's a way to do that 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 is not right for this character. Um, I do think that it is again. I think that some uh, some credit needs to be given to Cesar Romero's uh, original Joker. Because, oh, yeah. because you have to keep in mind, prior to that, the Joker was, you know, in two dimensions on a page. You didn't know what he sounded like. You didn't know, you know, they just put, they, it was fun to put the Joker's face up and then cover the frame with the word ha. Like, that's what everybody mm. did. That's what you did with the Joker. Um, it was a cool visual. But Cesar Romero certainly took it and, and Batman, you know, he sort of like he defined what the Joker was. He was the baseline Joker from which everything either stemmed or was a a struggle to not be. Um, yeah. And I think that that I don't know if Nicholson watched that. Um, certainly he was not in an age where he necessarily would have had to watch that uh, original Batman as opposed to people our age who, you know, we just have to have seen it because, of course, mm -hmm. we did. It's like Star Wars. It got into our head at some point. Um, yeah, uh, I feel like, yeah, his wackiness is is really important to what he's doing. And a lot of people, it's easy to take one scene in the movie and you know, to, to show the scene where he's like just flipping his butt around and stuff and dancing around and go, oh, what a silly joker he is. And if you watch the scene in, by itself, you could go, yeah, it's not as good as I remember. Um, which scene? Which when, scene uh, well, I mean, you could take it? the you could take the 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 improving the paintings scene, mm -hmm. or you could take the you know you you could you could take the 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 him pulling out the big giant gun. You could easily make a clip show of what a silly, stupid Joker he was. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that you need to have the scene of of him being goofy and silly right next to the scene where he's joy buzzing someone to death and then talking to their dead corpse um yeah he I, and I like and he improved the paintings in the you know he played prince from a ghetto blaster and improved the paintings in the museum after gassing everybody in the museum to death yeah and i think that that is that that is you it's very easy to cherry pick stuff to go oh what a silly goofy joker he was and i think you need to watch the performance as a whole because i think that he is doing something really specific um the way he doesn't make eye contact sometimes with the other characters in the scene the way he's willing to make eye contact right with the camera the way that he's yes, willing to just break the fourth that. wall um and just smile and deliver funny lines kind of freddy krueger-ish um mm -hmm. just go i'm go i'm gonna just deliver the lines to you because why not um, I think that his Joker is, is super successful. Um, yeah. I think that there is, 
There are a few, you know, it's interesting because there have been so many Jokers now. Certainly Hamill does a great job as a voice Joker. Um, I thought Heath Ledger was a revelation in what he mm-hmm. did with the Joker. I think that after Nicholson, there was the idea that nobody could ever do the Joker again, right? Nicholson yeah. like shut the door on the Joker and said, no, mm-hmm. there's no one who could ever like show that up. And then Heath Ledger shows up and blows it out of the, the, the water. And then you go, ah, he must be the best. And then the debate arises, who is the best, Ledger or Nicholson? Then Leto shows up and people go, who is the best, Ledger or Nicholson? <laughs> and then, and now there's of course the trailer right now for we'll probably do this weekend a release in November the new or December the new Joker movie that they're doing with Joaquin Phoenix um which really gets into the psychology of the Joker I mean this is really his Joker is 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 spectacular um and I mean, and, I, and I feel like the Joker is I think indisputably the most compelling villain in the bat like in terms of or it's certainly the most present in our societal archetypal mind of the Batman universe. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to talk about is, um, and I'll, let me talk about it in a second because I want to I want to talk about what we have and the way we've created superhero movies based on this. The other guy we have is Michael Keaton as Batman, um, mm-hmm. an unconventional Who is known choice for being a comedian before this point. A choice that people I do you remember how pissed people were? People were angry. There you can do, mm-hmm. go on YouTube and see like news reports about how Mr. Mom as Batman? Are you kidding me? Beetlejuice as Batman? It was the thing that was going to sink this movie. It was the way people reacted mm-hmm. to Heath Ledger as the Joker. People were like mm-hmm. it's he's going to sink this movie. He is the worst choice ever. And I will say this, my favorite Batman. My favorite Batman yeah. of all of all the Batman there've been. I, um I think that the that the um Nolan movies are better movies, but not my favorite ones. And Batman Returns, I've already, you know, spoiled that that's my favorite one. I just like him in the role. And I think that mm-hmm. no one has gotten that sort of detached my mind is on being Batman thing as Bruce Wayne, he just pulls them both off with great aplomb without going his Bruce over the Wayne top. Is so, is, his Bruce Wayne is always completely distracted. Yeah, like Bruce Wayne got... is distracted and charming. And when he's Batman, he's not forcing a voice. He's not yeah. really angry. He's just... The, uh, he's just I mean, for me, I the, it's interesting. The To me, when comparing Batmans and Jokers and things like that, I, I have to include the animated series up there because... It's true. Uh, you know, whether or not we cover the animated series, because it's not technically a film is one thing, but it is indisputable. You could cover Mask of the Phantasm uh, sometime if you wanted. Yeah, it, uh, it, oh, that's true. We could, we could, yeah, we could cover one of those as a, anyway, that's another thing. But like, Kevin, the way that Mark Hamill voicing the Joker really kind of also cemented a one particular idea of a Joker in so many people's minds, Kevin Conroy's Batman. To me, like when I think of Batman speaking and I'm like, if I'm reading the comics uh, and, you know, Batman starts speaking in the comics, it's Kevin Conroy's voice that I hear in my head. Um, That being said, of the actual live action films, I agree with you. There is something just I, I think what I like about Keaton's delivery is that he doesn't he underplays everything like he's just there in many ways. It's a very subtle. It's a surprisingly subtle performance, actually. Well, what's um, interesting about Michael Keaton is that you can absolutely buy him as a as a benevolent force. Mm-hmm. Certainly, he's played a number of good guys, but there's a malevolence to him. You believe that this guy 
could be there's just something in his eyes in his soul in his face in the you way know, that he, there's there's something there's the about him in, yeah yeah there's a moment in vicky's apartment when he's trying to explain to her and she's you know she's chewing him out for not calling her and everything like that and there's a moment he just he actually and i forget the exact line but he just sh- very quickly shoves her into a chair you're a really nice girl and i like you a lot you're, you're a really right nice now, girl but shut, shut up. up i have something yeah. to say yeah and there it is a like i remember just sitting back and going like whoa there's yeah. but you're right i hadn't thought of it until now, but in that moment, we see why this otherwise, you know, mild-mannered billionaire Bruce Wayne was sudden. We see in there the spark that could turn him into a violent vigilante. Who, at least in this film, um, you know, Batman, at least recently, famously does not kill. Uh, but in this film, it's it is really he murders uh, everybody. He just murders everybody. Yeah, he now, like he never he he never specifically. I'm trying to think if there's a moment where he specifically send someone to their death. Um, he he does it a lot. He throws guys down shafts. He Yeah, um, that's right. He, he he sends the Batmobile into a crowded room where it drops off a bomb and blows everybody you're right. up. Yeah, no, you're totally right. Yeah, he wasn't. And certainly with the Joker at the end, you know, when he uh, when he gets him with the batarang and the gargoyle, and it's a great thing. He's like, there was, <laughs> he wasn't trying to trap the Joker there. It was very yeah. clear what he was doing. Yeah. It's an 80s thing, but I mean, it's, it's, I think that the Batman's never going to kill thing works really well for the trilogy. I think that th- that the fact is Batman does kill. You know, he says he doesn't kill. Mm-hmm. He's killed plenty of times in the comics, um, and he, you know, and, and he will in the movies. I think that you're, you know, you're dealing with guys who are who are applying lethal force to you. The idea that you're going to never be able to apply le- now. He does it. You know, he does drop a bomb in the middle of a, a room full of guys. I mean, he just murders outright murders. And I don't know. You know, you can say not mm-hmm. my Batman, and that's fine. But, but well, I, I mean, and the thing is, at the in the eighties, good guys killed the bad guys. That's what good. Yeah, guys they were did. like, and the bad guys were all in uniforms or practically stormtroopers at yeah. this point. Like that's like you you don't care. No, that it's um going through real quick. So the reason I'm going to talk about Nicholson and Keaton um specifically is because this is there are two things that I noticed. One, in terms of the filmmaking, um, you say how Nicholson's the thing to watch. Nicholson, as expensive as he was, once you had him on set, he's cheap. Like you've already paid for him. You know, it's like mm-hmm. having like he's a commodity you've already paid for. It doesn't cost any yeah. more to have him on set. It costs a lot more to do all the Batman stuff. So I think it's worth noting you're cutting back to Nicholson a lot. And the thing that got me is when I was showing this to my kids, I was ready for them to rebel against it because, you know, frankly, they've seen Endgame, right? They've seen mm-hmm. they, they yeah. like <laughs> Like, like I, and what I found out was they were compelled by this movie. They wanted to keep watching it. They were sad that we were turning it off. I was like, really? And they weren't even that interested in the other movies. I was wondering why. And I thought back to the Batmobile chase, basically from the moment that, that Batman saves Vicky Vale. This is all that he does. He breaks through a ceiling, swings out of a room, gets into a car that's conveniently parked outside, drives really slow through what is basically a set like clearly they built three city blocks and are using the same ones over again crashes into a truck full of lettuce and pipes where they get to spill everywhere runs into Mm -hmm. an alley fights four guys and has a bit of a problem with it swings away and drives home and that is like the big action piece in the movie until the end that's the big battle of the middle of the movie is that there's not much to it but the the emphasis that is given to each of those moments 
um, the the little moments they give you within it. You know, yes, it's a slow chase, but still, the Batmobile has to take that cool cool corner using the the turn. Oh yeah, that cool there, corner. There are shields in the middle. When it crashes into a car, there aren't CGI explosions everywhere. It's like a close up on lettuce, like exploding. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when he gets into the alley, each one of the four guys, you know, has a different thing to him. There's a little gadget here and there, and there's 75 shots. It seems like of the Batmobile, you know, driving fast through a terrible wood set. Um, mm-hmm. and despite that, it's compelling. And I was wondering why. And I think that they're because of how little that they had to work with at the time. They wonder why were 80s action movies so much better. Because of what little they had to work with at the time, they made sure that when it hit a truck, it didn't just explode. There was lettuce there. You know what I mean? Like there Mm -hmm. were like they made sure that every moment like you taught me once that you can have filler moves, but it should always be like filler move, filler move, filler move, cool move is Mm -hmm. is in a in a fight scene. And I feel like the explosions that we get now are just filler moves and all they give us is bigger explosions now. And we're so used to stuff. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is focusing so much on make sure you get the cool move in there somewhere that it really is hitting the beats of the action. And I was stunned at how effective the action was, despite the fact that none of it was super awesome. It was effective. What are your thoughts? It was very effective. I agree with that. I also was realizing the I think another thing to this why this film is so compelling the pacing in this film is great. Um, I I don't th- at least for me I don't think there was any scene that dragged like for, um, like this was a film that moved from beat to beat very well um, and each individual beat like each scene was just as long as it needed to be and then they moved on to the next thing um, like it's not a the, the pace of it it's not a speeding train uh, you know that you know that drives relentlessly to the end um, though that can be certainly effective in films too but also this is not um, you know this is well I mean this is also not an end game. In the sense that there there are no and there's nothing necessarily wrong with the slow part of a film um, because that sort of builds sometimes, especially in drama, you want that slowness to build uh, to something. But for this, it just it moves from point A to point B to point C to point D with a strong pace that keeps you engaged. As a grown up, I agree with you. Um, as a kid, I would say every time they cut to Knox and Vicky Vale, I was like, I'm here to see Batman. You oh, know, yeah. No. OK, I can give you that. There's a there's a there's a good. There, there is a lot more Knox in this film than I remember there being. I, will I say like that. Knox. Um, I there's a there's a question to be asked, though, who is the protagonist of this film? And I think that's a problem. Right, you don't even see Bruce Wayne until like 25 minutes into the film. Is it? Kim Basinger because she is not there. There, I mean, it's not clear who the protagonist of the film is. It's not the mm-hmm. Joker. Um, the Joker is just a force. I, I mean, it's again, it's, it's and yet it works, right? The Joker is the definitive you, antagonist. Yeah. If if you want an example of a film that plays fast and loose with the rules of screenwriting, this is it. There's mm-hmm. a, the structure is weird, uh, it, but it just it just works. The other thing I want to say is it's. Um, the aesthetic of this film, the importance of the aesthetic of this film, you cannot overstate the influence that this film has um, up yeah. to the idea that Batman's wearing body armor. Well, if you look at Captain America right now, he's wearing body armor. He does. He's not wearing spandex. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The the stoic hero with the wacky villain would define can, like would define superhero films for up to and including like even into like the Thor films. Um, mm-hmm. you like this is the the film that established that as you had your stoic hero and the and the and the wacky villain the the way that the that everything works the action the the idea of putting the cool vehicle in there that you know goes all the way to the Quinjet and Shield like this film 
really does. I was watching, I was going, oh my gosh, this is the prototype for all superhero films, for up to and including mm -hmm. the Marvel Universe. This is the prototype for all of it. And I was stunned at how modern, albeit small, but how modern this film felt. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was, you know, certainly there's a bit of 80s in there. But um, and there are throwbacks to 80s, you know, things that were true of 80s cinema, like needing a soundtrack album, um, Yeah, which there's not I don't have much to say about the Prince soundtrack album. It's not great. Bat Dance is cool. I at one point I was making like a my buddy Steve and I would do um, how long could we make Bat Dance? Mm -hmm. So we would like using like our you everybody had like the the like the karaoke machine or the, the boom box with the two tapes in it where you could tape from one to the other. And we would use that to mix our own like 17 minute versions of bat dance and make it say things that it didn't originally say. Um, awesome. So yeah, so that that's cool, but the rest of it's not great, but I would say that, yeah. that much of the film is, is remarkably modern and holds up from a visual standpoint. Yeah. I remember when we reviewed Superman, the first Superman, like we both loved it. Um, you know, I think we both rated it pretty highly, but a lot of that was because of, you know, it did a lot of things right as well as, you know, it sort of set, it was so uh, historic in what it did. Uh, but at the same time, we gave it a lot of passes too. you know, in terms of the special effects, in terms of that we're like, yes, OK, this part is like really hokey in this uh, because of knowing the time uh, of what they had to work with. I don't feel like there's really with the exception of, you know, the dated Vicky Vale character. I don't feel like there's any real passes I need to give this film. It's just solid, even by today's standards. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. If I walked into a theater and saw this uh, now, I certainly probably would have said I expected a little bit more special effects and fight scenes. But uh, but, you know, not nearly to the same degree of, you know, if I sat down and watched the original Superman. But I think, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's. It doesn't have the adrenaline that uh, yes. that let's say even even indie films like Kick Ass uh, would have, but it does have. You still get the sense of scope to it, um, mm -hmm. and we and we haven't even talked about the amazing score by Danny Elfman. Um, oh my which, gosh! Again, you know, every score from now on tries to be. I mean, um, this is Elfman the Batman theme. Guy. Yeah, like even um, well, I mean, really, there's two Batman themes depending on which Batman. There's that da 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 da, -da which is the very lighthearted comic thing. I mean that that theme is now sort of used as a joke, but this theme is like that is iconic, serious Batman. Da 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 da. And a great yeah. opening title credit sequence, which is dark. You know, it's like what. The camera's just zooming through these. It looks like canyons. And you then didn't know what uh, it is. Yeah. You didn't know what it, it is. And then it pulls away to show the bat signal. It was, you, I mean, you should have heard my kids when they realized they both realized at the same time. Like, they're like, oh, it's a batarang because they don't know that that's oh, the bat symbol. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember yeah. my dad said when he went to see the original Star Wars and he sat down and after the opening crawl, seeing the, uh, the Star Destroyer you know, coming across the top of the screen there, uh, shooting at the other spaceship. Just that, in that moment, he was like, oh, I'm in for something truly amazing. Uh, again, and honestly, even that the, scene is important because it tells you right away, you know, in 1989, this is not the 1966 Batman. Get yourself ready. Yeah. It's right there. That scene plus the opening scene where the, pe where the people get mugged, you go, oh, this is different. Like the movie this is different. sets sets out to, to say forget what you think you know um mm -hmm. so good all right so well one, one last thing i yeah, want to just please. do a throw before we get into the the ratings um is i just want to give a real shout out to just how profoundly quotable this film is like i said i haven't seen this film for 25 years 
And it is astonishing to me when I was watching it, how many scenes stuck in my head, both from the visuals as well as the lines. I mean, you've got, of course, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? You've got, you know, Beauty and the Beast. Of course, if anyone else calls you Beast, I'll rip their lungs out. Uh, I mean, yeah, the Joker has most of them. Um, you know, where does he get those wonderful toys? Uh, wait till they get a load of me. But then, you know, even I, I so remember uh, Keaton's delivery of like, my life is really complex. Um, there's the dialogue in this was just was a real delight. Um, and there were some, you know, what it, the dialogue in this was the 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 speaking equivalent of filler move, filler move, filler move, cool move. It was filler line, filler line, filler line, quotable line. No, that's absolutely true. You want to get nuts? Come on. Let's Come get on, let's get nuts. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's that's absolutely true. And you know, we all we we also um I don't want to take too long on it because we don't have that much more time. But um we we did say we're gonna uh, discuss themes, and I feel like we've already hit it. If you don't mind my saying what I feel like the theme of this podcast is, go um, right ahead. The the theme of this podcast is legacy. Um, this is there's something to be said about about films. Um, specifically, I as a as a fan of of film in general for films that are the 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 cookie cutter from which all other cookies are made. Um, there's mm-hmm. things to, something to be said about the film that created the mold. Um, for which when we later say, oh, this is the film that broke the mold. This is the film that made the mold. The superhero mm-hmm. films that that we like up to and including today, this film is the beginning of the era of superheroes. It's not Iron Man. It's not the Dark Knight. And unfortunately, Superman, while being good in and of themselves, fails to ignite the spark that that mm-hmm. is then created for it. There are so many films that try to be this film, TV shows that try to be this film, um, and films that that either tried to be or tried to be the counter version of this film. You know, all that the, the Dark Knight trilogy is, is them going, we want to do Batman in a way that was not this film and its sequels. Um, but mm-hmm. it is still a reflection of this film and the sequels that they want to do the anti this film and its sequels. This film is um, is the the stamp, and we'll talk about the quality that it has in and of itself. But the fact that thirty years from now we are in the era of superheroes is is speaks to the power of legacy, and and I would say that there is nothing wrong with giving the you know we've complained a lot about films like The Last Jedi, which I really like. Um, but who who try that try really really hard to subvert the expectations of the audience, and I would say there's nothing wrong with giving the audience exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. And this is a film that just said, how do we do the Batman film that every frame of the film gives them what they want? Um, and through that, they've created a film that stands the test of time, but more than that, has left an indelible footprint, not just on the superhero genre, but on the history of film. This film is in its own way, now that we are where we are in the superhero culture, this film is in its own way as important as Star Wars. I would go on to say that there are probably more films with the DNA of this film in it than films with the DNA of Star Wars. And there are a ton with the DNA of Star Wars. But if I were to just take the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Batman films, and the X-Men films, we're at 60 films right there where I just go... Here are the films that this film spawned. This is the patriarch of all superhero films, and that is a downright spectacular legacy. 
Mm -hmm. But well, then let me ask you, Justin, with that in mind, then on a scale of one to five batarangs, uh, how would you rate this film? That's a great question, Um, because uh, like Superman, the motion picture, I can't judge this film solely on the importance of of what it has to give. Um, I can certainly give it a boost and it does get a a boost for that. Um, But I can't judge this film just because 70 other films decided to emulate it and because of the stamp that it makes. This is a film Mm -hmm. you say that that um, that is paced perfectly. I don't think that it is. I think that is a film that it's much. as And I really like Robert Wool as Alexander Knox. I actually find his character to be a bit of a breath of fresh air in the film. But I feel like that section of the film lags a little. Um, The action, while effective, um, is is not everything it could be. And I feel like it's a film that for all its great qualities um, is I can feel the hand of the studio, not quite wanting to make a superhero film and putting in a lot of let's make it an eighties drama. Let's make it as procedural. Let's make it let let's, let's constrain it. Let's neuter it a little bit. It doesn't have to be too comic booky. Does it? How real can we make it? And I feel like the film ultimately is not everything it could be, because of that, it's also constrained by, frankly, a bat suit that's an impossible that's impossible to move in. Um, you know and- what the bat suit reminded me of, real quick, because I'm just I'm watching through Doctor Who right yeah. now with uh, with Kelly, uh, the Centaurans, who basically you know, which have the you know, it's a massive prosthetic, uh, which means that they cannot turn their head at all, which means that they have to swing their shoulders in order to look elsewhere. They have no peripheral vision. And that is definitively this bat suit. So what I so as good as Michael Keaton is and with everything that he brings, I have a Batman that that does a little detecting, although he doesn't. You just see that he has detected. I see a Batman who you get the sense that he broods, but you don't get to see him brooding very much. I have a um, a villain who is spectacular. Um, and I'm gonna. I will give the Joker everything that he deserves. But I don't get Batman doing much Batmaning, and the world does not quite seem like Gotham. You you praise the the cityscapes of Gotham, and while I praise them too, once we get into Gotham, it doesn't feel like very Gothamy. It just feels like we're in any city. It feels like we're you know we could be in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so for that, um, I would I would have given the film a four but for everything i just said about legacy i'll bump it a full half step up to a four and a half um but the film itself in quality is somewhere between 3.75 and 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 a four because frankly when you're the when you're the first when you're the one who makes the mold you're also going to be the one who makes all the mistakes if that makes sense you're gonna you're mm-hmm. you're not gonna do it right the first time because nobody else has tried it before so you know, you're you're gonna you're you're gonna be afraid to go everywhere that that you could eventually go you the, the first the first time you make a meal is never the best time that you make the meal but if you're the first mm-hmm. one to make it then that deserves credit so I'm gonna give it four and a half um with the half being a boost um because of what the film is trying to do mm-hmm. nice. Well, I would uh, I was coming at it from, you know, first, there's the obvious boost of uh, of the legacy of it. Um, I, I was in my own mind trying to judge it based on how, you know, because obviously you put this movie against, you know, the Marvel films now and it I mean, the Marvel films blow it out of the water in terms of excitement and adrenaline and all that. But I'm trying to remember how I felt as a kid. Uh, as well as, you know, how it stands up against all the other films of its time. You know, so if I were trying to judge it by uh, 
by that standard, that, you know, that boosts it a lot in my mind. I mean, if I was watching this film now, I would have given it a solid three. Um, but if I, so my question was, okay, if I judge it based on how it was back then, how would I do it? And uh, I was, so I'm trying to think somewhere between four and five uh, because it was so iconic. Um, it did so much right and everything. But in my own mind, I've come to realize, I think I give fives to films that take my breath away, that leave me uh, that leave me staggered after watching them. And even as a kid, that's not quite what this film did. I mean, certainly, you know, I was playing Batman for the next year. Um, and, you know, I watched it a ton of times, but it never just, you know, it never sucker punched me with how good it was. Um, but that being said, because of its incredible legacy, because of how good it was, even for its time, uh, I think I would agree with you on this one. I'd give this one a 4.5. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I would say this. I did see this this film 11 and a half times in the theater. Uh, it's worth noting that I saw the second half of this film before the first half because my friend Steve and I broke into or not broke into, but snuck into a screening <laughs> that had two empty seats uh, like 45 minutes before our show started. So we watched the last Amazing. half of the film first. Um, which is, a, I don't think this is a film that suffers by spoiling, which is interesting how it does films not changed. No. Um, yeah. uh, I also think that, you know, if you put it up against movies of its time, it's worth noting that the back to the future trilogy was of its time and that ghostbusters was of its time and mm -hmm. that, you know, the predator was of its time. They had, and aliens was three years before there are tight films that, that would hold up today. I think the problem is, is this film lumbers just a little bit it clunks mm. just a little bit um it is ultimately crowd pleasing um and really pulls it together in that last act um which yeah. forgives a lot of wrongs because the last act is so much fun that last act is fabulous um and and you know whenever it does lumber they're smart enough to give nicholson like a two-minute scene in a room where he's just cutting out pictures or staring mm -hmm. at a tv and they just let him do some stuff and you're like haha and you're back on so yeah. um you know, this is a film that that I'm so interested to talk about uh, Batman Returns. So I will say Batman Returns is not a film that's designed to please everyone. This film is designed to please everyone. Batman Returns is a totally di different beast, a film that was not greeted with the aplomb of the original Batman. But um, I've already spoiled how I feel about it. But uh, I'm looking forward to taking a look at that film with a more uh, with a more critical eye next week. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, for now. Uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being patient with us. You will notice that we did not do Dark Phoenix uh, that came out this week. Uh, it will eventually be done when we do the Batman First Class series. But frankly... The X-Men um, First Class I, series. Uh, oh, did I say Batman? Ah, yes. The, the X-Men First Class series. But frankly... We, like the rest of America, decided not to go see it because uh, it, <laughs> it's so possible harsh. It's possible that reviews can keep you out of a theater. And when I see that the X-Men, um, my beloved X-Men, as I've said before, are getting 21% uh, are, are on Rotten Tomatoes, and I read some of those reviews, I just can't pony up the 18 bucks that it takes to go see it. So I will but wait let's take a moment and let's also acknowledge what a wonderful world we live in where we can see there's a superhero film coming out in the theaters and we're like, you know what? I'll just go see the next superhero film, which will come along very shortly. Yeah, this, it is. Yeah, I, there is a there's a world where 
you know, and even this film, the re- why did I see this seven and a half times? Because it was all you had. It was because the only was superhero film. There were no other, yeah. super, like you could, you could watch the old Superman movies on VHS and you could watch Batman 66. It's all you had. It's all you got. Yeah. What are you going to, so, between, you're going to watch Batman again or you're going to go watch and go back and watch Superman three again. There is no choice. Yeah. So, so that is like, that's part of what this film is. But yeah, we live in a wonderful world where we have these kind of choices. But uh, but yeah, sorry, Dark Phoenix. Um, we're going to have to wait for you. But in the meantime, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 